Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. Today we continue our journey to Perthshire and speak with the person who managed to get me to jump into a Baltic loch on a cloudy day, Mr Callum McLean. I met Callum a few years ago when we were both on assignment in the Loch Ness area. We met on a rainy October day to go canoeing in the Aegis Gorge, which, even though we got absolutely drenched, was one of my favourite experiences on that trip. We stayed in touch ever since, and I've been continuously inspired by his outdoor pursuits, whether it's crossing the Cairngorms National Park along the longest straight line without crossing a road or ice swimming in the deepest of winter. Last week, you heard a story about my latest encounter with Callum. He picked one of his favourite spots in Perthshire and we met for a walk chasing waterfalls and lochs. Today, join me as I sit down with Callum on the edge of Loch Tay. We'll talk about outdoor swimming, water safety, speaking Gaelic and more. Let's listen to his story. I am sitting at the edge of Loch Tay with stunning views of Kenmore and I'm joined here by Callum McLean. Hi Callum, uh, do you want to start us off by introducing yourself, what you do, your preferred pronouns and a bit about yourself? Yep, hi I'm Callum McLean, uh, what I do, lots of different things. I say I'm a broadcaster because that covers it, it makes it quicker but um, I present TV programmes, I make films, I take photos, I do a whole variety of things. Lots of them connected with outdoor adventure stuff and also the Gaelic language, Scottish Gaelic. 
Um, so that kind of covers what I do. I wear lots of different hats. Um, my pronouns are he, him. And one thing that I do a lot of is outdoor swimming for fun, for just for myself. But I ended up, and I do still make lots of films about it or lots of work connected to it in a variety of ways. Um, wild swimming, outdoor swimming, open water swimming, whatever you want to call it. I kind of do all different aspects of it. In fact, I've just written a book. So that's going to be out this summer. Um, so yeah, like, uh, lots of different things. And I work for myself, so I'm also working with a lot of different people as well. What's the book called? 1001 Outdoor Swimming Tips. So it's like literally what it says on the tin. The publishers, Vertebrate Publishing, have a series called 1001 Tips. And there's a climbing one, there's a, a running one, a cycling one. And they asked me to do the outdoor swimming one. So um, yeah, I think there's... A lot, of, a lot of straightforward good information in there and a lot of it is written from like, my sense of humour and the way I see things and so like tips that are totally personal to me um, so you're getting like an insight into my brain a wee bit when you read it maybe <laughs> which I think is, you know, it helps it not be just a straightforward, boring, dull book so ideally there's a lot of good stuff in there for someone who's never swum before but there's also going to be tips for people that have like swum all their lives um, you know, things that they might not realise or things that people often ask me like how to take cool photos underwater, uh, what stuff should I take if I want to you know, go swimming in a mountain loch, uh, how do you do ice swimming, because I do that as well. Um, so it covers a whole range of things. Cool. So hopefully you'll share some of those tips with us today as well, yeah. but that's a book to keep out for, definitely. And I think with 1001 Tips, you do have a lot of space for some humour and some more niche <laughs> recommendations yeah. and advice as well. It's pretty right. cool. So like, when you get to like 979, you're like, oh no, I'm struggling here. So it's like, um, dry your big toe, dry your next toe, <laughs> dry in between your toes. There's three tips. Yeah, but it's like, uh, yeah, so some of the tips are totally straightforward. Some of them are like borderline taking the piss, but uh, they all work together. Yeah. I think that's the whole point of it. And um, yeah, it's written from a way that people can hopefully enjoy it as well as getting something out of it. And is that something you've always done, wild swimming, or is it something that came to you later in life? Um, like, it's funny, because I get asked a lot, how did it start, when did you start? I can never say for sure. Like, there's not like, oh, yes. Well, there is one swim that really sticks in my mind. But when I think back as a child, we did loads of outdoor stuff growing up. So, like, yeah, actually, I did swim quite a lot as a child, mm -hmm. just in, like, lochs and rivers when we're out camping and... Mainly in Scotland, but also in some other places around the world. Never competitively. So, like, I was never a competitive pool swimmer, never a competitive open water swimmer. And it wasn't until, yeah, probably into my early 20s that I properly got into it as a thing for, like, for doing a little bit of competition. So I did, like, some triathlons and stuff, but more as an activity and just a pastime mm. and just going and finding cool places to go swimming and then challenging myself with uh, swims to sea stuff you know, adventurous swims that are like take you on a journey. Um, so that's really, that's a lot of where my interest is in now. It changes over the years, like as to like what I really enjoy about it, I think. Um, particularly over the last 10 to 12 years, I properly got into it and it became, it is a wee bit of like a borderline obsession at times. Like, <laughs> like I say this, but like so many swimmers will say this, like you see a body of water and you're like, oh... I think I could swim in there. I need to go swimming there. I want to go swimming in there. So it's like, that's not something that's individual to me. That's like loads of people end up feeling like that. It's when you get really hooked on it. Mm -hmm. um, and it does become, you know, it's the kind of thing like, it's a beautiful day today. It feels like I have to go swimming. Like, why wouldn't you go swimming? Um, yeah, so I get like a paradigm shift where like a lot of people are like, 
oh, you must be mad, it's really cold. But it's like, you don't even think about that, you approach it in a totally different way when you really enjoy it. Do you have any tips for people? Because it's a big trend, I would, I would call it right now, as a lot of people have picked up outdoor swimming, um, if you want to call it wild swimming, which I think is a very contentious term, probably, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, but if for people who want to start outdoor swimming, do you have any tips who are really right at the start of how to get started, how to do it safely, maybe resources they can check out? Yeah, I've got a great book, 1001 Outdoor Swimming Tips, check that out. <laughs> what a, a great place to start actually, like online for example, because people often go online to get information now, uh, the Outdoor Swimming Society, who I am an ambassador for, um, not a paid thing, just like I like to, to spread the word. They've got a huge amount of resources in terms of like, articles online about how to do it, how to find other people that are into it mm. maybe how to do it in like a safe way but also in like a way that then you continue to challenge yourself the main thing is to like early on take it really slow and easy especially if you live in a country like scotland where it's always going to be cold even in the middle <laughs> of summer you might get a few days where it's warmer and um, the water is usually going to be cold somewhere either at the surface or deep down so like take it easy so somewhere you can get in and out of the water pretty easily here is ideal you can walk straight in off a nice beach that drops away gently don't stay in too long like how long i don't i wouldn't like to ever give like a hard and fast rule mm -hmm. of like x minutes to x temperature i don't like that because it doesn't apply the same to every single person it depends if you're wearing a wetsuit if you're not some people like wearing neoprene some people hate it choose somewhere easy to get in and out just do maybe a couple of minutes the first time start in summer and get yourself warmed up afterwards so by putting loads of layers on and getting moving I really like to move instead of just sitting around and then once you've done your first time you'll see if you enjoyed it you'll see like what worked for you what didn't and think of it as like a process where you're learning all the time some people just like to get in the water and just be in the cold water so it's almost like cold water immersion mm -hmm. which is really beneficial for you know for the way your mind works a lot for your body as well but also for improving your mood a lot of people use that that might be your thing. Maybe you'll go in and maybe you want to swim a kilometre. Maybe you want to get into endurance stuff. That might be your thing. Everyone's different. Um, so I'd say take your time to find the way you enjoy it and choose somewhere easy to get in and out, get warm afterwards, and you're just learning all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And you said there, wild swimming, outdoor swimming. So it depends who you ask what it is. Like, to one person, what they consider wild might be just like someone else is swimming. I think... Like, I understand the term wild swimming. I don't really use it myself so much mm. now. But I think it would basically mean somewhere that's not got lifeguards. Mm -hmm. It's outdoors. There's no, like, human control, as it were. So, like, if you went to, I don't know, a Lido, you're swimming outdoors, but it's not wild swimming. Mm. If you went to, like, an open water lake, which you get a lot of now, like, um, controlled venues... Again, it's not really maybe wild swimming because you're in a man-made controlled environment, although it's not necessarily safe still, uh, unless you know what you're doing. I think wild is where you don't have any kind of safeguards and you just have to look out for yourself. So I understand the term. Some people don't like it at all. Like, I think, I think call it what you want. Like, I'm not, I'm not a big one for gatekeeping, saying like, oh, don't call it wild swimming. Like, if you want to call it that and that's what, you know, fits you, go for it. It's not a term that I use as such. But um, I understand why some people mm. use it, so like I don't have a problem with it myself. Like, you know, times change; the way people describe stuff changes. Yeah, I think as well, you know, as long as it gets people into the activity and they get something out of it, 
who cares what they call it, you know, and it's like you don't have to do it one way or the other. There's no right way. There's a safe way to do it. There's no right or wrong in terms of what you call it, where you swim, how long you stay in. You know, you just do what is right to you and yeah. and what benefits you the most, yeah. I guess. I think so. I think the like the kind of argument slightly on the other side that I do see as well is like that it's almost like this kind of rebranding of something that is just like you can just go and do it. You can just go and swim. Uh, you don't have to brand it as like a wild swim and that it's mm. almost like... Um, like you're saying almost like a trend mm. so that like oh I went wild swimming like using it as some kind of like like a, like a, a badge that it was I don't know somehow different mm-hmm. which like I can kind of see but the way I feel in the end is like call it what you, what you want to call it in a way and enjoy it how you want to enjoy it but I think there'd be a difference between like if you swam across from here to the other side of Loch Tay it's pretty wild but I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's like what most people would consider wild swimming I think you're then into like open water swimming yeah so I mean I don't know where the line is is it like 200 meters I don't know <laughs> but um yeah people have di- people have different opinions different views of the same thing yeah just the way it is well as long as everybody enjoys it that's yeah. the most important thing um but getting back back to that safety element so of course we were supposed to swim on our hike yeah. that listeners have heard about earlier um last week in the story and they will have also already heard what we're going to do in a little bit when we actually will go for a swim here in Lorté. But we didn't go up um, in the pools and that had to do with safety. It was raining heavily last night. Can you talk a bit about, you know, what are maybe some of the things to look out for in terms of safety and making sure that you, when you go out there swimming, you do it in a safe environment? Yeah, so ideally choose somewhere that you know. Um, obviously, if you've never been swimming there, you might not know what's in the water. So, for example, our place today, we thought it might be a bit sketchy because it had been raining heavily, but we went up and had a look. Straight away we knew. You could see the pool was totally washed out. There was nowhere in the pool without water moving. So straight away that's like a bit a bit of a concern. Um, you couldn't see into the water because it was all dirty and muddy. Straight away, anyone looking at that knows it's not really suitable for swimming. I think the start of the swim and the end of the swim are sometimes most kind of dangerous or like times you've got to be most aware so that's when you're getting into the water cold water shock can happen and that's mm. when your body starts shutting down you don't use your muscles properly move properly because of the shock of the cold water on you so the one of the best ways to deal with that is to walk in slowly so somewhere like here you can go into your knees <laughs> you start to feel like oh, oh it's quite sore you know, you take 20 seconds, you go deeper, you go past your waist. So you're going in slowly, slowly. You're not just running and launching yourself into deep water straight away, which is when problems happen. So walking slowly, um, especially if you're going to go somewhere where you, you know, you've had a wee swim and then you want to go for a jump, which is quite good fun. You're jumping off the end of this pier. Always check what's in the water first. So like, mm-hmm. put a goggles on and have a look. You know, have a wee swim down, see if there's like a trolley, see if there's like an old branch, see if there's like rocks that you don't realise are there, see if it's actually only two foot deep. These are kind of things that totally catch you out and they can change. Like mm. someone might have come and chucked a trolley in here last night. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We're in Loch Tay. There's no trolleys anywhere nearby. But like these are the kind of things that like happen and change with heavy rain. Yeah. Logs will be here. Um, at the end of your swim is getting out and getting warmed up nice and quickly because often at the end of the swim you feel like you're really buzzing and you feel mm. like alive and you feel like Superman and you feel like you can do anything. But... You, sometimes, especially in very cold water, you get a bit of a delay within the next 10 minutes where you get what people call the after drop, mm. which is when your body temperature is still dropping once you get out and it kind of the process accelerates once you get out. Um, so that 
you then start to shiver really and you suffer the cold is basically moving still within your body uh, and that can be quite dangerous too because you you know you lose the ability to use your hands properly mm. and you stumble and you trip could potentially be the start of well being in cold water could potentially bring on the start of hypothermia mm. so you've got to be aware of these things um, so it's getting yourself warmed up having someone with you that can look out for you and know you know know that you're all right putting loads of layers on just getting moving and don't try and drive after a very cold swim mm-hmm. is one like because you're just your, your brain doesn't work in the same way quite often and you're not you get almost a tunnel vision after mm. swimming in very cold water um this doesn't happen all the time but like very cold water and you've been in slightly tongue yet a kind of tunnel vision and you're not taking in everything so driving afterwards can be very dangerous so it's like really if you're going for a swim and you can be in you know any amount of time and you're going to be in getting cold plan ahead for like the time afterwards is a big thing so that you're not just going to go straight into doing something else it depends like if you're wearing a wetsuit obviously you can be in for longer and you can just recover a lot quicker so it's not like like I'm saying there's no hard and fast rule but these are things to look out for stuff like that having someone with you is a big bonus as well as like just helping you get into the water and uh, having someone to encourage you uh, having someone to look out for you and mm. help you get dressed <laughs> you know could be a big thing <laughs> so yeah it's um, you're, you're not an expert overnight yeah and like are you an expert even after 10 years you're always still learning so um, yeah it's a lot of it's location choice and if you're swimming somewhere loads of boats and that wear something really bright either mm-hmm. a swim cap or a bright tow float here we're not going to go out far we're not going to go really near any boats there's not much vessels on the water so I'm not going to take a tow float today if you are an unsure swimmer you can take a, kind of a tow float something that you can hold on to um, as long as you're not you know, necessarily relying on it yeah. when you start your swim but uh, yeah things like that can make it simple make it easy and also like a big thing I didn't take any today but having something on your feet mm-hmm. depending where you are in Scotland a lot of the places can have jaggy sharp stones which yeah. are really horrible to walk in and out on you can cut your feet if it's a popular place sometimes bottles get chucked in and broken mm. and as well as that actually your feet and hands feet, hands and head are the three bits that suffer the worst of the cold yep. so keeping them warm will actually help you stay in the water a lot longer so yeah. having neoprene socks on neoprene gloves and keeping your head out of the water or having something warm in your head will help you swim for a lot longer, help you last a lot longer in the water. Um, yeah. So you're telling me I should have brought my neoprene socks and gloves <laughs> that I have in the car. <laughs> it's up to you. I mean, uh, I think we're really not going to be here for too long, yeah, so we'll be all right. we'll be fine. But um, particularly after, particularly in winter, mm. that's when you really got yeah. like protect your extremities. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a listen what that slowly entering into Loch Tee sounds like and I think you'll enjoy this one. <laughs> right, GoPro. Oh, you've got a swim. See, I've got one of those in the car. <laughs> it's just because I'm going to check it's deep enough. Okay. Yeah, I'll stick my head down there. Oh my God. It's cold, isn't it? No. Uh. <laughs> now I know what you meant when you said, you know, you go into your knees and it hurts. <laughs> it sure is. Ooh, what's there? Oh my god. Oh wow. This is so cold. Yeah, it is pretty cold. So lucky it never gets warm. Is that because it's so big? Yeah. Or is it quite deep? Or yeah, probably about both, yeah. 
bit of both. So we're at the waist. So this is like the next. So the knee is the waist, and then the nipples are like a few bits. <laughs> oh, there's the waist. Ah! At least the ground's nice and muddy. Yeah. And soft. And seaweedy. Well, loch grassy. So, we're at the end of the pier here. And like, I'm about the stage where I'm like, you've got to commit almost now. Which is getting your shoulders under. Right. It's the next scary bit. You ready for it? I think so. You don't have to stick your face in. Obviously. No, I won't stick my face in. But, um, but I big, will. Big deep breath and then exhale as you get the shoulders under. Always helps. And then pop your shoulders straight back out after two strokes. And then you're like, oh, it's not so bad. I think. If you say so. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to count down? Sure. One, two, two three. three. actually colder than expected. <sighs> it could all be, uh, <laughs> could be all that rain. So as long as we've got control over our breathing. Oh. Oh, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. <laughs> oh my goodness. I feel like my feet are almost like dead. <laughs> Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Let's shift tone a little bit. Yeah. I think we've talked a lot about wild swimming, which is obviously a super interesting topic and we could probably talk for another half hour easily to fill the rest of the podcast with that. Um, but I would also love to talk to you about Gaelic because mm. it is a language, of course, uh, of Scottish heritage. Um, it's so important in still many parts of Scotland where it's still actively spoken in many communities. However, the majority of Scots don't speak it and don't understand it. Um, when you drive around the West Coast in particular, you see it on the road signs. But I have to admit, you know, I don't know how to pronounce it. You, of all people, know best. Uh, but I, keep, I kept asking Callum about how to pronounce certain Gaelic things and then went on to butcher them in the first two seasons of the podcast. Um, now I tend to try and cut them out <laughs> because I feel bad of always asking people. Um, so it is a it is a language that is so essentially Scottish, yet so many people don't speak it. And I'm wondering what your route to Gaelic was and how you found to the language. Have you always have you always learned it? Have you always spoken it, or was it something that you learned later on? Yeah, so I am half Scottish, half Australian, you could say. Like my mum's side of the family are Australian, my dad's side are Scottish, although he's from all over the place. Um, and I was born in Australia but grew up in Scotland. And as we grew up here, we, me and my sister basically always spoke Gaelic to my dad. So my dad's side of the family from Applecross, a small place in the Highlands, always had Gaelic in the family. He didn't have it growing up, he learned it as an adult, mm -hmm. although he does most of his work through it and teaches learners now. And... So we spoke it to him growing up, so I've only ever spoken Gaelic to my dad, really. Speaking English to him is unusual, and be weird to do so. Um, so I've always had it in that way. And then I did Gaelic medium education in school, so you're doing like primary one to four, so it's like, what, five years old to like 
nine years old, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing it all through Gaelic, and then on uh, five to seven, it's kind of a mixture of Gaelic and English. And then high school, basically, you're, you're just doing a normal English-speaking, usual high school with a few subjects in Gaelic. Mm-hmm. So doing that, Gaelic medium education are quite widespread in Scotland in terms of like where it is. The numbers are still very small for Scotland to hold, but it's growing massively because the demand is growing massively. Mm-hmm. Um, but the difference, I think, between me and maybe a lot of my classmates who all went through the same education, but some of them maybe wouldn't speak Gaelic now. Mm. Uh, there's a few geese just flying by. A lot of my classmates who went through Gaelic medium education but didn't have it at home. Yeah. Whereas I had it at home, which is a big benefit. Yeah. You know, because you're getting to use it a lot more, you're using it in contexts and situations outside of school, for example. Mm. So that's, that is a strong reason why I still have it today and yeah. why I still use it so much maybe and why I engage with it and you know understand its importance maybe because we even as kids we'd go on holiday all around Scotland visit different communities and like you know meet people outside our own circle who had Gaelic and that which maybe a lot of kids don't get to do and don't see how widespread it is in Scotland don't meet other people who use it just on a kind of normal basis um, so I've always had it from that side and in the probably in the past 10 years or so using a lot more Mm. for work through work so I work a lot with BBC Alipa the Gaelic language uh, TV channel I used to work full time for the BBC as a journalist um, working mainly in Gaelic but um, doing some stuff in English too yeah uh, I work with a variety of people working on a big project called Speak Gaelic which is a adult language learning initiative basically it's it's got TV programmes and podcasts is how I'm involved in making social media content, but it, it's got like an online structure courses um, because Duolingo got massive mm-hmm. during lockdown. Tons of people, I think it's like half a million people doing Gaelic on mm-hmm. Duolingo, which is like way more people than actually speak Gaelic in Scotland. Um, so that's really good, and it's, it's trying to like get encourage that and also encourage people who maybe had it growing up to come back to it and use it more confidence is a big big thing Mm. so like you're saying you could live in scotland and never come across gaelic quite easily depending where you live in scotland you could live in the highlands and probably never hear gaelic you could like choose like not to engage with it in a way and like live your life kind of oblivious to it but as soon as you start to look at a map as soon as you look at a place named loch tay loch ta you're starting to see some gaelic straight away and you're starting to see maybe stuff that's before gaelic even in Mm. the place names but um yeah, once you start to engage with it, you see like how widespread it is and how much it's there. But because we live in an English-speaking world, you can do you know the vast majority of the world to like our, our Western point of view is like English-speaking, and most of the media we consume is like Western or English-speaking. You could, I think, because of a lot of that, you end up using English so much more that if you don't use your Gaelic, you lose confidence mm-hmm. in it, and that is a big issue with a lot of speakers. Uh, not using it enough, losing confidence, not using it in context like outside of school, for example. Yeah. Um, but because I do, because I have used it in loads of other contexts, I think I'm quite confident in it. And um, yeah, I like to you know teach it and spread the word about it and a variety of things, but not in like a not in like a straightforward way, maybe. Like because I think there's a lot of I'm not I'm not a teacher, for example. I'm not an academic, mm. and I don't really I'm not that interested in like kind of like. A lot of maybe the P Celtic, Q Celtic kind of thing that people talk about, like, uh, or you know, like the history and the origins of it. 
like I'm very interested in history and stuff that we can relate to but like I think I'm very interested in people just using Gaelic in a normal way, in a kind yeah. of contemporary way. Yeah. Um, so I've got friends who I'll only speak really Gaelic too, for example. Um, and often, often, the situation is, is when you meet someone for the first time, uh, however you interact with them, what language you use, can often be like instilled then. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, there's some friends who I'll only speak Gaelic too, probably because we started off on that basis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm probably rambling now. That's all good. Um, I, I really like that you say you have Gaelic, not you speak Gaelic. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that probably comes from uh, the Gaelic term, ha Gaelic acum, which is what you'd ask someone, Evil Gaelic acum, do you have Gaelic? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, Evil Ubrian Gaelic, that's like totally unnatural way yeah. of asking the question. Yeah. So, ha Gaelic acum, um, I have Gaelic. Different sentence structure. Yeah. I have Gaelic, so that's why I would say it. Yeah, yeah I really like that. It, it creates a very. A much more kind of personal relationship with the language mm. and refers more, I think, towards culture than just purely language. Yeah. Or I, is that something that you wouldn't agree with? Or uh, I never thought about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think like the culture uh, that surrounds Gaelic is a very strong part of it as well, and a lot of people maybe engage on that basis, maybe mm. more than just the language. So like the music that goes along with it mm. a lot of traditions depending where you live in Scotland there's a lot mm. of traditions that are associated to the language um, in terms of like you know life and death and mm. marriage and stuff like that yeah so a lot of people might engage with the music for example hear music hear Gaelic singing um, and I think that's a brilliant thing I think yeah. that goes along with it I think we really need to keep that strong um, I'm also very I actually don't actually play music myself so I'm very interested in people just using it in you know whatever context they want you know yeah. like if they like to write sci-fi, write sci-fi in Gaelic or whatever. If they if they like to sing in Gaelic, then how about learning it as a language and not just, you know, phonetically learning it, for example? Because, mm. uh, I mean, I think it helps you appreciate Scotland a lot more and just understand way more about Scotland. So I don't you can have a full understanding of Scotland, even, like, the Highlands and how the Highlands are. Like, if you start to look at like, on a political level of, like, how the land is owned and who, mm. who lives in the Highlands and why is the population like it is and why is it so sparse and why are all these empty ruins in these glens that I go walking down that like no one lives in these glens what are these empty ruins like once you start to understand Gaelic and how the language and the culture Mm. of the Highlands maybe where it was treated and how it's changed over the years you start to understand a lot more about Scotland in general but also mainly more about the Highlands yeah um because Scotland, I mean, Scotland's a mixture of people and languages and places, and there's people move here from all over the world, and Scottish people move around the world, and you can see like Gaelic place names all around the world and places where people have moved to mm-hmm. from Scotland, you know, either for immigration purposes or you know, a lot of Scots moved and made a lot of money through slavery and stuff like that. You know, these are things you've got to like start thinking about. But even within Scotland, it's funny because you've got a huge amount of place names that are Gaelic all over Scotland just about apart from really maybe you know Orkney and Shetland mm. but right across the whole of Scotland I'm talking about like the borders Lothians everywhere like that um, origin, Gaelic place names or place names that are Gaelic in origin but you're getting such a mixture if you look at a map some that have been anglicised mm-hmm. and some that are still in like the original Gaelic um, particularly if you go to like Westeros there's tons of the mountains that are in Gaelic and then you go to slightly you know South Ben Nevis everyone mm-hmm. knows Ben Nevis the highest mountain in Scotland Ben Nevis is the Gaelic name, so Ben Nevis is like just an anglicise mm. anglicisation. So it's like it, it's funny as a Gaelic speaker, like all right. So like I go to 
I don't know, Inchalloch, and I'm calling it by the Gaelic name, but then I go to Ben Nevis, should I not just call that by the Gaelic name? Or, mm. you know, since it's been anglicised and known more widely as that, do we just call it that? Or, since everyone starts thinking about these things these days, I go, particularly over the past, like, I don't know, 10, 20 years, people start to realise these things more and think more about, like, you know, colonialism, stuff mm. like that. Should we start to appreciate the, the Gaelic more and use it more? And um, particularly if we want to have people speaking it again and growing it, yeah. um, it should be more widely used and people like, should appreciate it. I mean, I always come to it from a point of like, someone who's in the outdoors, because I'm always in the outdoors, and I think I can engage with a lot of people on that level. So that's a lot of a lot of how I use it. Maybe stuff to do with mountains, stuff to do with loss, stuff to do with just doing stuff yeah. outdoors. Yeah. Well, and that's also also where you come across the Gaelic names that haven't been anglicised a lot, you know, with names of mountains, with the terms you use to describe certain features, um, abelach and, you know, things like that, which, again, like, I'm probably pronouncing all of these very, very badly, but it all, it actually doesn't matter because the fact that I see the words in Gaelic and I tried to, Gaelic and tried to pronounce them in that way gives me an engagement with that language, even though I'm not trying actively yet to to learn it um it's you almost yeah like you say you can't get around it and i'm wondering does that and i think it's really interesting what you said about you know ben nevis and shouldn't i call it by the gaelic name does it change the way you experience the landscape when you see the gaelic names or when you call it in the gaelic names does that do anything for you differently it does for me personally yeah and a lot of it's to do with like understanding of the place and like appreciating a place a lot more so I like to go hill walking, I like to go hill running, so sometimes if I'm running, it's maybe not so much about taking what's in, you know, you just want to get up the mountain, you want to you, know, you want to get the good feeling that you get from it, you want to challenge yourself physically, um, so maybe you're not taking in things in the same way, but I think it totally does change your appreciation and totally, obviously, any name of a mountain is a, it's like a human thing in the first mm. place, you like, the mountain by itself you know, wherever it's in the world, didn't have a name until maybe a human gave it a name, but it helps us understand how people saw the land and how they used it and, like, helps you appreciate it way more. Like, for example, <laughs> two examples. You've got the Cairngorms National Park. Now, the Cairngorms is, like, the Blue Mountains, but the name itself, even the National Park name, is different in Gaelic. Mm-hmm. So in Gaelic, it's Park Nashanta Vonni Rui, which means the Red Upland. Because that's what the mountain range was always called, was Monuch Ruach, the red-coloured upland, the kind of russet-coloured upland. But Cairn Gorom, Cairn Gorom, is just one mountain. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the big one that um, people ski on, Cairn Gorom. But I think Monuch Ruach was too hard, sorry I've heard anyway, it was too hard for a lot of, like, maybe around Victorian times or when people started mapping and writing stuff down. It wasn't just oral tradition anymore. Um, that was too hard. So it became the Cairn Cairngorum became the Cairngorums and spread wider. So yeah, even right there in one of Scotland's kind of most famous places, the Cairngorums in Gaelic, there is no Cairngorums. Mm-hmm. It's just in Monogruig. So right there, uh, are we kind of in the wrong place already? Calling mm. it the Cairngorums, but within that, there's a place called Lochan Uanya, mm. the Green Lochan, and a lot of people call it maybe the Green Lochan. And if soon as you see it, you know why it's green. It's a small loch. It's a Green Lochan. But so the name is Inlochanuanye, and it means the Green Lochan. But if we call it like eh, the Green Lochan straight away, even then I think we're starting to lose something. I think we should be calling it Inlochanuanye, 
and then afterwards you can call it the green loch hand because that's what it means but as soon as you start to put like the english first it almost says like that that is the name and that's how we should view it mm. and i think that's wrong and i think we should be um appreciating you know the the gaelic of the place and appreciating the culture of the place and understanding that yeah you can have a translation with it but you wouldn't go to france and call mont blanc white mountain would you like, mm. no one does that even people like from Scottish people, you people from the UK going there would call it Mont Blanc because that's its name. Um, so yeah, can't yeah, remember where I'm going again. But no, that's a really good point. I think, and I think it, it, it almost—I don't want to say erases, but it, it kind of takes away a layer of understanding who's lived there. Who, who, you know, there might have been a different name for that loch or for that mountain before the, the Gaelic people gave it that name but it does take out that layer right it does take away from the experience that these people had of the landscape if we now just refer to it by the English name which is the current culture or the current dominant culture anyways or language 100% speak. yeah so like tons of places uh, that have a Gaelic name might have had something else before Shieldig up in the West Highlands uh, comes from Sildvik which is like a Norse word for Herring Bay so like yeah it was originally a Norse name which is then actually loads of Gaelic is made up of Norse words as mm. well especially your kind of northwest coast so yeah it's like I'm not saying I'm not saying you know Gaelic was here first you know everything has to be in Gaelic not like that at all because there's loads of place names that come from all over the place mm. um, but yeah it is basically erasing it and getting rid of it if you're saying it oh yeah this is this is what we should be calling these places or like mm. calling them only by an English name um, you're, you're losing your history and like you know why do we enjoy places like if you want to make it easy we just call everything like hill one hill two hill three <laughs> like it's boring who cares like yeah. it doesn't you don't appreciate anything you've got uh, quite a famous mountain <laughs> I think it's quite famous because I know my mountains people that don't know mountains probably never heard of it um, in Westeros called Bichan Echore Heski yeah never heard of it do you want to try it? <laughs> can you say it again? Bichan Echore Heski Perfect, perfect. But like a lot of uh, maybe, maybe you've got an advantage because you are multilingual, but a lot of people who don't speak maybe more than one language really struggle with that one. I've Particularly, it again. <laughs> well, if you see it written down, you'd be like, ugh. But um, that one, so like it has, by quite a lot of like kind of outdoor climber people, it's started to be called cheesecake because they reckon it sounds like cheesecake. <laughs> Which I think is pretty shit crack, really. That is pretty awful. It's pretty bad. and it, But it's it's more like, it's almost like, ah, oh, it's a fun thing to call it cheesecake. But I think you're almost like, uh, you're not doing yourself any favours. You're almost like, in a way, you know, like, give yourself a bit more respect that you can mm. say it. Like, come on. Um, and so that the mountain means, Bichan is like a, a pinnacle or a, a point. Um, Kore is like a kori, a mountain kori, a big bowl up on the mountain. Um and Sheskoch is like barren. So Bichan Achorahiski is the, the point of the barren Kori. So it's like actually got quite an interesting name. And it's, I think it's because of it was very poor grazing. Mm. So people obviously take their cattle up into the hills. Not so much these days, but like take their cattle up into the hills for summer grazing. They knew that Kori was pretty crap grazing, pretty barren. <laughs> I think that's why. Yeah. So um, yeah, it like helps us understand how people use the land, saw the land. Uh, other 
than just like going up it for fun yeah. which is probably what we do these days there's a poetry in it as well I think and you know rather than naming a mountain after a person or, or something or an event or something like that I think there's quite a nice poetic element to the way Gaelic how descriptive often Gaelic names can be yeah. um, of the landscape so if someone wants to learn Gaelic what is a good where is a good place to start Ooh, well, it's funny because I didn't learn it as an adult, so I'm always like, Ooh, is that the best way? There's a variety of ways, and it can really depend how you learn. I'd say start off going to speakgaelic.scot, mainly because that's a big scheme that I'm involved with. But I think it's very good because it takes you from the basics, and it's got TV programs and kind of learning materials. And then alongside that, you can do courses and classes. So you can do face-to-face classes if you live in a place that there are some. You can do online classes. Alongside that, learngaelic.scot is great because it's got, again, tons of resources and then can also direct you into the different kind of classes. So some people do online learning. Some people go to Solmar Ostig, the Gaelic College in the Isle of Skye, which is great because then you're in a place where you're immersed and speaking Gaelic every day. Some people learn it best through, uh, you know, self-teaching obviously Mm. that can only take you to so far but um, some people actually learn it best by going out and living in the western isles Mm. whilst doing courses so there's a whole host of ways i'd say speakgaelic.scot and learngaelic.scot are the best ways to start and then find the different paths and find maybe the path that works for you best a lot of people start on duolingo which is actually a really good way to you know get into it initially and start to learn the basics Um, it's actually pretty good duolingo Mm. Duolingo will only take you so far so after that you need to kind of progress in a way and actually speaking to people, using it as much as you can mm. is the best way um, so those are some pretty good resources I need to make some videos actually on like uh, some of the mountains and stuff like that so mm. it's always an idea I've got to do but I never find the time or like the exact structure for it but uh, yeah I think I should do something like that might be a really nice way for people to kind of slide in I yeah. would definitely watch those <laughs> yeah. there's a really good series uh, on BBC Alpha years ago called Chir is Chenge which means land and means land and tongue but land and mm-hmm. language and it's literally I was like oh if I'd been you know it was like 10 mm-hmm. years before I was doing TV stuff but uh, it was like it's like kind of my ideal programme they're going up walking up mountains and talking all about the kind of the words that yeah. are used to describe it and the place names and stuff like that it's really interesting I think like if you're into the outdoors and if you're into like seeing stuff in Scotland it can totally engage you yeah. so like yeah if they make a new series of that I'm make a know. reboot pitch it, it pitch it yeah. go for it <laughs> <laughs> and do you have do you think there's any particular words or phrases that would be useful for people to learn when they come to Scotland I mean we do go to places where you know Gaelic is more commonly spoken the Western Isles maybe the West Highland Peninsula Sky maybe in parts <coughs> What are some of the things? Or maybe you can teach me a few words. Oh, good question. <clears throat> One that everyone will probably know um, because it's used so widely in Scotland now, which is probably a good thing. I think it's slancha. Slancha, which means health. Um, it's what you have when you have a whiskey. So people who don't have garlic will probably use it mm-hmm. you know, as a kind of go-to. Um, but if you want to impress someone or confuse them because they might not realise... You can say slanchevor. A lot of people will know that, which is like big health. Or take it to the third level and say slanchevor hulula hi snachech. I like it. Slanchevor hulula 
Echi. Echi. Snachek. Snachek. So it's uh, every day I see and I don't. But it's more like every day I see you and every day I don't see you. Good mm-hmm. health to you. So, yeah. like, ah. have some good health. Even if I don't see you, I'm wishing you good health. So that's pretty good. <clears throat> um, a pretty good one just for, like... If you're going to the Western Isles, for example, you're going to a shop... The people working there might have garlic, but they might not. They're mm. probably not going to speak to you in garlic in the first place. Yeah. Because they're not going to assume that you've got any garlic. So a nice, simple matin va. Matin va. Matin va. Matin va. Good morning. Mm-hmm. Also, might just put them on the back foot. They might think, oh, oh they have got garlic. So <laughs> if they start speaking to you in garlic, then... Um, pronounced correctly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a good one. Uh, matin va. And... Tahpaleat. Tahpaleat. Ta pa leat. Ta. Ta. Pa. Ta pa. Leat. Leat. Thank you. That's thank you. Ta pa leat. Yeah, uh, Gaelic has this like thing where it's almost like hidden H's in a way. Yeah. Or, like uh, you you speak it in a very different way to English. There's all these like there's pre-aspirational stuff like that where you've got the, yeah these hidden H's almost mm. like ta pa leat. Uh, when you see it written down, it's spelled like tap. A D H. And left is L-E-A-T. So, tapa left is thank you. So, that's quite a good one, too. Yeah. Um, if you're going into a shop. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. But then, even stuff like Bialach. Bialach. Like you said. Yeah. So, that means a, mount, a mountain pass. Bialach. And a very famous one. Bialach Naba. Or Bialach Nambo, if you're being grammatically correct. <laughs> but, um, which is the... Uh, the pass of the cattle or the pass of the cow into Apple Cross, mm. which a lot of people will come and do visit in summer and see. Um, so that's yeah, and a lot of people there. Everyone there you usually just call it the Bialach. I'm yeah. going over the Bialach. Um, so it's always yeah, that's a, that's a really good one where I think it's important that we call it the Bialach or Bialach Naba or Bialach Nabo, and not the hill road or the the pass the of the pass cattle road, in yeah. the first place. Call it by the Gaelic name, then you can call it by the English name. Yeah. Um, I think you know, to, or to to translate it. But yeah, as soon as you start calling it only by the English name, you lose loads of history mm-hmm. and you lose loads of the importance of it. So that's a, that's another good one. A great one. Very simple. Very easy. End of the night. Leaving the pub. Aichiva. 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 Just good night. <laughs> and then yeah, head out head out on the road. That's a good one as well because like. It's true though. More people start drinking whiskey. Okay, not everyone has to drink, but more people start drinking whiskey. People have got garlic. The more likely they are to use it. So yeah. um, the more you'll hear it, maybe in like the pubs, uh, once people have had a few drams and that. Yeah. Maybe that's down to confidence again. I don't know. Oh, you lose the inhibition a little bit, yeah. don't you? When when you've had one or few two drams, one yeah. of you, <laughs> one or a few. Uh, it's easier oh, yeah. to speak. Hi Hello. there. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Some, uh, Been ambushed by a couple dogs. of dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, dogs are going in for a good swim. That's right, pal. That's right. So yeah, I mean, maybe we should be a bit more like dogs in our outlook in life. Oh, he's gone straight past the stick. There we go. Oh. Just like yeah, just go and get stuck into the cold water. Exactly. Well, let's do that. Thank you so much, Callum, for taking the time to talking to us about all the things swimming, Gaelic, teaching me a bit of Gaelic. I've already forgotten all of it. I'll have to ask you how to write all the things for the transcripts but also to then practice and remember it myself and yeah let's go for a swim now let's do it Janushka into the water
Thank you so much to Callum McLean for taking the time to share his story with us, and of course also for encouraging me to take a dip in the cold water. You can connect with Callum on social media at Caldamac. He's on all the platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter and Facebook. I'll drop those links in the show notes. Callum's book, 1001 Outdoor Swimming Tips, will be out in July. So if our conversation has inspired you to take the plunge, I'm sure you'll find this to be a trusted guide. And if you sign up to our email list, you'll soon find some tips and resources to learn Scottish Gaelic in your inbox. The link to sign up is in the show notes. That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favour, share it with a friend who might enjoy it, post about it on social media, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These are all great ways for you to support our work at absolutely no cost to you. We're back next week with the final story of this season. And as sad as it is to near the end, I'm very excited to share it with you soon. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten path. The show is written and hosted by me, Cathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Tarowskis, who's the co-producer and editor and does the sound design. And to Michelle Payne, who helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.